Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Garrick Desanay and welcome to a new episode of Unlock People's Potential. Today we're going to talk about two of my favorite topics, besides cooking, personal growth and innovation. My guest today is Karen Dion. Karen is a former editor of Harvard Business Review and the author of two great best-selling books that she wrote with Harvard professor Clayton Christensen. The first book is How Will You Measure Your Life? This is a book that helps you answer questions about career strategy, personal development, and happiness using business theory. The second book is Competing Against Luck. This is a book about innovation that gives you some of the greatest tools to make your business more innovative. In this episode, Karen and I talked about these two books, but also about what Karen has learned along the way and how you can implement business theories in your life and your business. This was such an exciting chat. So without further ado, enjoy today's episode. Hello, Karen. Good morning. How are you? I am very well, thanks. How are you? Very good, very good. Karen, let's start with How Will You Measure Your Life? This is such a great book. Uh, I actually recommend it a lot. And so far, I only got very positive feedback. And so can you actually tell us a bit more about uh, the book and how this started? Sure. Um, How We Measure Your Life is a book that um, I helped Clay Christensen write, I think, four years ago. Uh, And it actually changed my own life. So I'm really happy to talk about it. But let me tell you what the origin of the book is. Clayton Christensen is a very well-respected and well-known professor at Harvard Business School. And at the time that the idea for this, what became this book uh, first occurred, he, I was the editor of Harvard Business Review magazine. And I was really just kind of casting around for an idea for an extra article to run in one of our summer issues. It was a double issue. And it was that at that time, it was the summer of 2010, I believe. And I remember thinking to myself, it would be very interesting to ask the class of 2010 graduating from Harvard Business School how their definition of success may have changed, because that particular class would have applied to business school when the world economy was still fantastic, and then start a business school right when the recession hit in 2008. And I was curious if being in business school and having some time to think about it had made them recalibrate their definition of success. So I thought it was an interesting question, but I had no real agenda. But as I was speaking to students, they repeatedly were telling me about a speech that Clayton Christensen had given to the graduating class, that he had been chosen by the class to speak to them, which was, in essence, the last lecture, his lecture that he gives to his students so that he wants them to go out into the world and have a great life. And the origin of the last lecture from him is really interesting. He himself was a Harvard Business School class of 79, I think. And he remembers clearly thinking so highly of his classmates and they all had so much potential and they all wanted to change the world in great ways. And they were, they were sort of set for everything good to happen to them and for their work to matter in the world and to make a difference. And then at each successive Harvard Business School reunion, he remembers being a little bit crestfallen that some of his classmates, increasingly more of his classmates, really ended up having neither satisfactory careers nor satisfactory personal lives. And so he kept trying to ask himself, what happens to these people who have so much potential but don't end up being happy with the lives, personal or professional, that they build? And it led to him 
giving a lecture that he would say is his single most important lecture for his class every year. He gives it at the end of every class. And in the class, he effectively shares with the class, these are, these are the best business theories I know, and we've talked about them all semester, and we've applied them in class to business decisions and business problems. Now take a minute to think about how will you apply the best thinking we've, we've shared here to making sure you have a happy personal life and a happy professional life. And it's a very powerful lecture, even asking students who are about to graduate to focus and care as much about the life they're building as the job or the company or the career they're building is a really important thing to stop and take a minute to do. So when I heard about the lecture and its effect on students, I asked Clay if we could turn that into an article for Harvard Business Review magazine, and ultimately we turned it into a book. Oh, that sounds amazing. And actually, I have a first question about that. You said that it changed your life. How, how did it change it? It changed my own life because at the time I was uh, very, very busy, happy professionally. I was the editor of Harvard Business Review, which is a job I know a lot of people, it was probably the pinnacle of my career, a job a lot of people may have aspired to. I was really happy to have it. But as I left the office of Clay's office the day we talked about the idea for this article, one of the questions he had asked me or shared with me in that conversation was, "Are you built? is the strategy for your life really consistent with the goals of your life? Effectively, as in business, if you say your strategy is something, are all of your actions actually supporting that strategy or are they really not? Are they misaligned? And as I left his office, I actually stood in the parking lot next to my car and not putting the key and thinking about that question for myself. I would have told you and meant that my family was the most important thing in the world to me. Uh, and it was true. But very few of my actions, my choices of my use of time, the balance of how I spent my time, the discretionary choices I made with my time actually supported that being my strategy. In essence, I said it, but nothing I did was actually supporting that my family was most important to me. And it began a process for me personally of about a year long thinking through how I wanted to think about and measure and value my own life. And I ended up with goodwill and blessings all around, quitting, resigning as the editor of Harvard Business Review to spend much more time as a mom. I consider myself a mom first and a writer and an editor second now. And so I left a full-time job in favor of being psychologically present with my family and then working in different ways that demonstrated that my family was a priority, even though I still do work that really matters to me profoundly. And I'm sure a lot of people actually relate to to your life example. And why why does this happen? Uh, how do we end up actually in a path that we are, haven't chosen? It, it is particularly a problem for people uh, who are, are, are naturally sort of high achievers. Um, and lots, I'm sure your listeners fall into this category. People who are entrepreneurial, I think, are, from my own experience as the deputy editor of Inc. Magazine for Entrepreneurs, are very driven and their achievement is very personal and it's a, it's a definition of who they are. Um, for people who are high achievers, who are hardwired that way, as I was, um, are so uh, motivated by sort of fast rewards for their behavior, for their effort. And if you think about it, where do we get the, the, the most quick payoff and rewards and pats on the back in our personal versus professional life? For most of us, it's at work. You get a promotion. You stay late. You get that report in. Your boss is happy with you the next day. 
you make an extra sale, you organize something, you get all your correspondence cleared off your, out of your email. All those things make us feel good. They're little rewards. Those happen very quickly. And it's very satisfying to us. It's kind of hardwired to want those rewards. With families and personal life and friendships, you really, those take a very, very long time to pay off. And you don't know every day if you're a good parent or a good husband or a good wife or a good partner. You don't know every day if you're a good friend. You just sort of hope that in the long run, that turns out to be the case. So, so we're hardwired to spend all of our energy and time where there's a choice on the things that make us feel good about ourselves, which is the work stuff. And so for so many people, we take jobs because they're going to give us those rewards. We put our extra effort into that work solely because it gives us those rewards. But after a while, the reality is that stuff doesn't actually become very meaningful to you, but you sort of get stuck in the cycle of wanting those rewards. And it's very hard to change the way you've sort of hardwired yourself to, to be motivated. Now, this is so right, because when we get stuck in, in life that we actually don't want, it seems that there is some inertia that is taking us there, and we don't want to do that. And so, having experienced uh, a massive change in your life, I mean, I'm saying massive, but <laughs> maybe it wasn't that massive, but having experienced some change, what do you recommend that someone does to, to change uh, the life to get something and go somewhere that he really or she really wants? Well, um, it was massive in my life, so I can definitely give you my take. And my best advice to people is don't get to the point that I got where it has to be massive. Because I was at that point a middle-aged mother of two youngish children. And, you know, I could see I was far enough into the choices in my life that if I didn't course correct, I, it would be very, very hard to, you know, sort of relatively quickly. My best advice is don't get to that bad point. Start by actually having that conversation with yourself. You know, what is my ultimate goal, my strategy? How will I measure my life? What what really matters to you? And, and answer with yourself honestly. It's not for anyone else to hear. It's really just a conversation in your head. If you can articulate that and be sure that it's true, you know, feel like this is truly what motivates me, what matters to me, then do an assessment. Do, do, is the way I spend my time is the way I spend my energy, is it clear from a day, a week, a month in my life that this is the strategy I'm working towards? And if there's a misalignment, if it's really, really far off, then start to think about how you can make small steps to get it back in alignment. It's not possible for everyone, I understand that, to quit their job and, and go to a completely different direction. But we all know we have discretionary choices over how we spend our time. Do you spend an extra hour at the office in the, on the weekends? Are you engaged with the people in your life that matter to you? Are you distracted and on your phone the whole time? You can start in small ways to be honest with yourself if you are actually using what resources you have personally, energy and time, um, to line up with the things that you say matter to you. And if you're not, and you're not willing to change them, then maybe those things really don't matter to you, and you have to be honest with yourself about that, too. Oh, this is so true. And have a piece of advice for those who want actually to do a review is if you 
put your meetings in your calendar app. Actually, look at your app and you will see quickly how you spend your your time and where you're actually allocating your resources. It's a great idea because it's, it's an analysis like that you would do in any business, right? What are you spending your resources on and what categories are they going in? And there will be, for most people, a lot of things that you can't change. You you have a job, you need to earn a living, you know, everybody needs needs money. There's no question about that. You can't just let that go. But all of us know in our heart of hearts, we make some discretionary choices. And for me, I think the biggest thing probably was not psychologically being completely present in my home life when I was home. I was always thinking about work or on, in those days it was a Blackberry, or it was just being honest that I really wasn't plugged in the way I needed to be plugged in. Um, and, and sort of saying that to myself out loud, like making that a true statement about myself allowed me to begin to change that. And I have another question about um, dreams, because I noticed one thing is a lot of people start their career with big dreams about what they want to achieve. And later on, they actually change these and kind of moderate the dream and realize that they won't achieve or actually don't want to achieve what they had in mind. What, why is that? Well, that I mean, just using business as a parallel, that's a very common thing in business, too. The vast majority of successful businesses end up being successful with a different strategy than the one they initially thought they had. There's research on that from um, some Harvard academics. So it's not unrealistic to have to change or alter your dreams till you get to the balance of what's what's right. Also, There's a discovery process. There's what Clay Christensen calls an emergent strategy. You're trying to figure this stuff out. What's it really like to spend your time this way or to have a dream of this? You don't know anything. You can't possibly know anything until you're you know, walking in that career, walking in the shoes of the person with those dreams or building that kind of company. Um, and it's okay. Com successful companies recalibrate their strategy as well. You just have to get that balance right. If I'm going to shift my dreams, are they still dreams that are going to fulfill me and make me happy as opposed to just giving up on my dreams? That's that's a very different thing. And so the, the, the right process would be more to, to say that the dreams are more assumptions about what we want and then experiments. Absolutely. Well, that's that. That is a, a really important business strategy, actually. It's called discovery-driven planning. So many businesses have made really big fundamental mistakes by going very far down a path of building something or investing in something or innovating something based on assumptions they made months and months ago, but that never turned out to be true. And if you never revisit your assumptions, you, you will be baking into your ideas, your, your vision, your plans, faulty, you know, faulty underpinnings, faulty uh, assumptions about it. A, a great example of it is um, Euro Disney, where I have been. Um, Euro Disney, when it was started, way in the early stages, somebody made the assumption of the average number of days per visitor, I can't, I can't remember, I think it would be three, which is what was true in most of the other Disney locations. And they built all their financial projections on and, and their offering on the assumption that the average visitor would be there for three days. They were very far down the line and not... They were not doing as well as they had expected to, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong until they realized they clicked. Their assumption had been three days, but they hadn't realized or thought about the fact that they, in the beginning, offered fewer rides and attractions than the other Disney properties. So the average person was done in two days, say, and it was just so baked into all of their financial projections that they never stopped to go back and 
question and challenge and check every single assumption. And if you don't do that, you're basically baking mistakes into all of what you're trying to build. It's very important to constantly to articulate your assumptions. What has to be true for this to work personally, professionally, uh, and check them constantly. Just test them. Is this still true? Because if it's not, you need to rethink it. And if you don't even know that you've baked something incorrect into your thinking, you're really just doomed to, to failure, to go off the path. And Karen, have you come across an interesting example of someone who experimented with his own or her own assumptions on what they wanted to do? Well, it's something that I actually talk to um, people. I, I tend to mentor younger people in, at ages and stages of their career when they're still trying to figure things out. And just asking them to chronicle them and check in with them, I think, is a step people don't think about. So it's very common for people to say, you know, if, you, if we do the exercise together, what are your assumptions that taking this junior level position or going to the startup company will, will prove true? Um, if you don't even kind of articulate what you're assuming, you won't even know if you're walking down the path. So, for example, somebody might start at a big name company, working at a big name company, because they assume it will provide them with opportunity. They assume they will have the culture that they want. They assume that they'll be paid off. You know, the raises will be good. And if six months, a year, two years into that, that none of that proves to be true, then they should change your jobs. There was a, an example of someone I talked to who had been promised that she would be able to work in emerging markets and the NGO universe at a venture fund, that they had, they had interest in that. Um, and they did have things that they did that were in that universe. And so she assumed it, but it was never baked into her job. And she assumed she would be able to sort of maneuver into that. And then after a year or so in the job where it was clear that was not the company's priority for her, she actually was, felt good about making a job change. She wasn't giving up anything because she knew her assumption was faulty and there was no point spending more time doing something that was not going to lead her to the career that she wanted. Is, isn't it also frequent that people start and have their own assumptions about what is going to happen when they take a job and then actually end up not monitoring these assumptions or making sure that they validate that they have the right assumptions and just embrace uh, the path. And that's how they actually drift apart from what they really wanted. It, it is. There has to be a balance. You have to, you have to articulate those assumptions. Or even if you, sometimes you might have those assumptions personally, but if you never discuss them in some way with your manager or with, with your colleagues and peers, It, it may be that you're so disconnected from that. The reality of all those things happening is so unlikely that it's never going to happen. I know as a longtime manager, uh, I always advise people to, at the right time and moment, and when you're feeling secure in your job, talk about your assumptions and your hopes with your manager. I would like to grow in this way. I am hoping that I can gain X experience. Uh, would you help me? If you don't articulate those things to yourself first and then out loud, then it's it's not as likely to happen. And it, it, you almost, if you don't chronicle the assumptions, at least privately, you might sort of push them aside. They're not that important. Oh, it's okay. It'll work out. But it's it's like being conscious of any other thing in your life. If you don't keep track of it, uh, what gets what gets measured gets done is what they say. If you're not keeping track of what your assumptions are, you're very likely to forget why they were so important and again, veer off course. 
in some cases that can be okay because you it's an emergent strategy you learn things and and you change your assumptions but you should be conscious that now you're changing your assumptions you have to have a baseline from which you're starting do you have any methods that you recommend to keep track of these assumptions Um, I actually think literally, I don't know, you you can't make it a giant burden, but when you're taking a job, I actually have done this myself before, long before I met Clay, just intuitively did it. I I put a kind of list of pros and cons together when I was comparing job opportunities. Um, And they were effectively assumptions. You know, one was, would it allow me, you know, time to have a family? Would it allow me growth? Is there room for promotion? All those kinds of things. Those are assumptions. Um, And for me, I guess I did actually do it. And it was as simple as I literally did it on a piece of paper. You should do it in some way, formally or informally, before you take a job. And then maybe even do it as you're, as you're progressing in your job, you know, before you go into your annual review or as you're seeing what's happening to your peers. Are, you, are your assumptions correct about what's going to happen to you? Uh, I think just doing the exercise of doing it. And again, I literally did it on a notebook paper, but it was helpful. Whatever method works. Pros and cons, assumptions, what I what what I hope will happen. If you write it down, it's the beginning of, of sort of making that part of who you are. Karen, I, I think it's so important and I just want to emphasize that that's making sure that you have the right assumptions is very important, as well as communicating uh, these assumptions to your team and your manager and also maybe visualizing them by putting them on paper. And Talking about manager, isn't it also the the responsibility of the manager to make sure that everyone is growing and everyone knows what where they want to go? It absolutely is. But I can tell you, as both being a, a longtime manager and being managed by people, there are good managers and there are bad managers. And uh, it is a good manager should absolutely be doing that. Uh, and should be checking in constantly. An annual review or check-in conversation should always talk about growth and we sh- they should be working in partnership together, the manager and managee. That doesn't always happen. And it's not always because the person's malicious or doesn't want you to grow or um, somehow has it in for you. Sometimes it's just they forget or they get overwhelmed or they think it's implied and it's not. So I always tell people who are who have managers and want the opportunity to grow, take some responsibility for that themselves. Make sure that they do articulate those those goals and those assumptions and those hopes with their manager and check in on it and check in how they're doing. Make it in a in a in a healthy conversation part of the relationship they build with their manager. A great manager should want someone to to grow so much that they go on to, to better things. Um, but not everybody's hardwired to be a great manager, and sometimes you have to give them a little bit of help. Now, this is so right. And how how the manager should approach that? Because I guess sometimes people are quite reluctant or worried of sharing what they actually want to achieve. They don't want to look too ambitious or they don't want to look too comfortable. So what the manager should do to encourage them to share that? Well, the manager should, should share it with them straight, straight out. You know, I, I really look forward to how, how, how do you want to grow this year? I have these ideas for you. Um, it, both sides should always frame it in the context of this is good for the company. We're on the same team and you're getting better at this or you're having these opportunities is good for the organization. That's something everyone can agree on. There's no question of Personal ambition is in there, but it's done through the lens of this is going to making you stronger helps the company be stronger. Um, so I think a manager just making an effort to articulate that this is 
expected. This is healthy. Maybe you ask the employee to come into annual review, quarterly reviews, whatever the right time frame is with what things have you accomplished in this most recent period that you're proud of? What are one or two stretch goals? And here's here's what we're going to work on together to, to help grow you. I think that's that's very possible. Again, if you make the assumption that it's an important part of your job to do this. Yeah, no, this, this is right. And I feel the strength of the book is that you and Clayton used a vocabulary that people who work in the business world understand well. And I was wondering, how come business strategy is actually so related to personal strategy? Well, it's it, at its core, it's really simple. It's it, it's theory. It's the power of theory, which, again, my eyes glazed over when I first thought about that with Clay. But really, theory is business theory or any scientific theory is a good understanding of what causes what to happen. It's causal mechanism, is what we say. And so theory is the, the foundation of the How Will You Measure Your Life book because it's, it's theory that Clay teaches, but it's also very appropriate to make sure you understand what actions will cause what things to happen. And that's true in your personal life as well. A really easy example is my strategy, right? Strategy is built, my personal strategy is built the same way a business strategy is. The choices you make every single day about for a business or a person, how you spend your energy, time, resources are actually how you build your strategy. So no matter what you say your strategy is, it's only actually what your actions tell you it is. That's the causal mechanism. Strategy is built by everyday choices by people who work on the front lines of business and make a decision to prioritize this project over that project or sell this product at this price. Every choice they make is reinforcing what the real strategy of the business is, whether it's articulated differently or not. That's true in, in our lives as well. It's the causal mechanism. The choices we make lead to outcomes. And so, Karen, I hope that many of the listeners will actually uh, get how will you measure the life. And I was wondering, what do you want uh, your readers to do after they finished reading uh, the book? I think the most important thing is to have that honest conversation with themselves. Are you building the life you really want? Because you can't sequence your life. And I think I probably fell into, I was guilty of this thinking, I'm going to spend 10, 15, 20 years building a great career and I know my family and friends will kind of be there for me, but hopefully at the end of 20 years, then I'm ready to turn my attention to being a great mom or a great husband, wife or a great daughter or sibling. You can't expect all those things to kind of be on the sidelines and then become equally important 20 years down the line. So what's important is to be honest with yourself. Are you building the life professionally and personally that is really going to make you happy in the long run? And if you're not, you can fix it, you can change it, but you'll never change it if you don't have that honest conversation with yourself. What really matters to me? And can I make my life align to that better? Oh, this is beautiful. And Karen, talking about uh, the importance of theory, you, you are going to publish another book with Clayton um, about one theory that he explained in his classes, which is called the jobs to be done. Can you explain a little bit more about this framework? Sure, sure. It's uh, it's sort of a clunky name, the theory of jobs to be done. But at its essence, it is, again, getting at the causal mechanism of why consumers, people, make the choices that they do. The, the gist of the book and the idea is that companies all around the world are still pretty terrible, by and large, 
at innovation. There are success stories, but there are a lot of things that don't survive a year in the marketplace or a lot of ideas that are mediocre ideas. Companies spend so much money on research and development and analytics, but by and large, organizations are not getting better at their innovation efforts. And the question is why, why not? Why don't we, we've never known more about our customers. We have the ability to have data about them at our fingertips at any given time. Why are so many innovation efforts failing or just fading away because they're not successful? And Clay's idea is that at the core, the causal mechanism, the reason that we make the choices that we do to buy something and not buy something else, to, to buy a product or service and bring it into our lives, is not simply because it matches our demographic or our characteristic or it functions better than anything else. We make choices because we essentially have jobs to do in our life. We call them jobs, but things we're trying to accomplish. And jobs are complex. They're not as simple as I want to keep track of my, my, on my calendar better. My job might involve doing that, but it is also in the context of because I want to measure how I'm spending my time with my family and I want to feel better about myself. There's a, there's a social piece of it. There's an emotional piece of it. And so the idea of the theory of jobs to be done is until you fully understand the job that people are hiring a product or service to do in their lives, you won't create the right combinations of features and benefits and things in that product or service so that it actually is successfully doing that job for them. It's a way of thinking about innovation that goes beyond data and getting to the sort of true essence of, of how and why people are making particular choices uh, to, to bring a product or service into their life or to do nothing, to, to suffer without anything because it's just the options out there are not good enough. So it's, it's a way of thinking about innovation through a different lens. If you think, what are they actually trying to do and it's not as simple as what should the product do functionally to please people. So it's really an alternative to the buyer personas. Yes, it is. Personas is, is a common way, and I've done it in my, in my work. We've had personas for Harvard Business Review, for example, where we, met, we, we typed people into four different types, where there were lifelong learners and idea enthusiasts, and they're useful for, they were useful for us thinking about our editorial. The problem with personas is they're kind of an average of things, but they don't ever have context. Why are you a lifelong learner? What's, where are you in your own life? What, what's the reason now? Why now do you need to, to step up your, your desire to get more ideas? You need to understand why. It's circumstance dependent. It's usually somebody struggling with something and they're trying to find a solution but the circumstances of why they're struggling is really important. And personas is only sort of halfway there. It's useful, it's directionally useful, but it doesn't get to the essence of why. It just helps you, I think, about a type of person who might use your product. But you might, two different people who fall into the same persona might have very different reasons for getting products or services that they get and they don't relate to each other at all. And have you actually applied the, the theory of jobs to be done at the Harvard Business Review? We actually did some research a few years ago, um, which was in the space of it. I didn't realize it was a, at the time we were working with a consulting firm called Continuum, where we basically tried to figure out where Harvard Business Review fit in people's lives. And it was sort of, again, what job were they hiring uh, 
um, Harvard Business Review to do. And sometimes the answers are really surpri surprising, and that's the point. It's not that um, you can't sort of imagine some of it, but you can't imagine all of it. For example, I remember that we learned people, Harvard Business Review was competing for some people, not with other academic publications, but with the New York Times or uh, other sort of intellectual pursuits, but not necessarily academic or business. It was that, that space in their mind where they wanted to better themselves. Cooking Magazine, Cooks Illustrated. It was a surprising set of competitors because we weren't competing just for business information. We were competing for the space of their brain that wanted to better themselves in some way. And that was a surprise. And the, the theory of job speed actually also brings in the, the question of what business are you really in? It is. It's a, again, it's all, oftentimes a surprise. There's a, there's a great example um, we use in the book where uh, a consultant who helped do the art was one of the architects of the jobs to be done thinking was working on a project for uh, a condominium company. And they were set, they had created 12 or 13 sort of different locations in uh, the greater Detroit area. And they were selling very nice condos to people they expected to be downsizers, people who had owned homes or kids had moved on and they wanted maybe a bit of luxury at a pretty good price and they didn't want to have to take care of their homes anymore. And they would have lots of people come in and, and look at them. They had a very good rate of people coming, being interested in them, but very few people would actually go on to purchase. And they were trying to figure out, well, what else could we do? These, we think the units are pretty good, but our pricing is good. We look at what our competitors, other condo companies are doing. Uh, and they had people in for focus groups. And they said, what else could we add to make these more appealing to you? And people did have a lot of ideas. Oh, you know, bay windows. I'd like squeakless floors, granite countertops. So they started creating a show unit that had all of those things. But still, sales did not improve. It was only when they started to ask questions about what job were those people who did actually hire a condo to do, what was it doing for them? And they got at the core of it. And it turned out it wasn't, I need a better place to live. It was, help me transition my life. And so granite countertops and squeakless floors were nice, but those didn't make people want to buy them. But what turned out to be really helpful was uh, they helped them with the move and they gave them two years free storage and they gave them a, what they called a sorting room, a sorting room, so that for people who found it very emotionally stressful and, and difficult to, to let go of the things they'd been storing in their home for years, children's artwork and old photos and things that probably didn't have space in a smaller home in the future, but the emotional wrench of going through that was so much that people couldn't bring themselves to make the move. When they addressed all the kind of emotional components of, of moving houses, one of the single biggest um, things was that people had a really hard time getting rid of their dining room table. And at first, their dining room table, that's weird. Nobody even uses dining room tables anymore. Why would you want it in this lovely sleek condo? But then they realized the dining room table for so many of these older downsizers represented family. It represented all the traditions and birthdays and, and happy times. So getting rid of it was just too hard for them. So what they did is they created a little extra space. They made one of the bedrooms a little smaller so people could fit a dining room table in there if they wanted to. It was all of the context of what were they trying to accomplish and what were the emotional pieces of that and the social pieces of that that were far more important than any of the things they could have added to the condo units themselves. And they had a huge increase in sales once they did that. And what what are the 
most important steps to figure out uh, a job to be done? Well, you have what you're trying to do is not make any assumptions at all. That's that's I think the single most important thing because a lot of us think we know and and we bring in all of our own baggage, all of our own um, initial bias about what we, the company, your product or service, what we think people should want. And to some extent, everybody in the room, it's like the uh, the story of the elephant, uh, you know, where everybody feels a different part. The marketing person sees one perspective. The R&D person sees another perspective. The salesperson, another. We all bring different assumptions into the room without realizing it. So I think it's so important to have an absolutely blank slate. And it's easiest to try to get at what they were hiring a product or service to do when you talk to someone who's actually already made the choice. A lot of people say they want things and they care about things, but their actions definitely speak louder than words. So you're trying to get at, in lots of gentle ways, almost ethnographic, what were you trying to accomplish? What we say in our book is what progress were you trying to make? And if you can sort of define the progress they're trying to make, and the emotional and social and functional pieces of that, then you start to look at the competitive set very differently. A great example is, um, in what universe are these things competitors? PlayStation, Sony PlayStation, a bottle of wine, a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, and an exercise class. What? How could those ever be competitors? They're competing for the job to be done in my life of help me relax after a stressful day of work. And when you know, okay, that's what's happening. That's what Netflix has gotten so good at. Netflix's founder, uh, Reed Hastings, is very clear. They're not competing just against Amazon Prime or any of the streaming services. They're competing against opening a bottle of wine instead. We are about helping people relax in their homes. You think of what you're offering people very differently. It's not important to be solely better, faster, cheaper, whatever. All those other pieces of the puzzle come in and become very important. Netflix has to be easy to use. It has to have a big selection. It has to be just as easy for me to flick on that computer or TV or, or mobile device as it is to go pop a cork on a bottle of wine. You think about your competitive set differently, and it will cause you to design and develop your offering in a very different way. Yeah, it's really about defining what business you're in. And Netflix, for example, is more into the business of helping people to relax right. rather than being in the video exactly. business. Exactly. And when you, a theory becomes useful, you actually start seeing the world through its lenses. I see it all the way in, in all aspects of my life. You think about it all the time. Once you start, once you have that in your head, what's the job to be done here? I think you see everything differently and it's really helpful. And you, you actually shared one example of looking at your own life and seeing it through the lens of the job to be done. Uh, and you used Airbnb as an example. I did. I recently, uh, I was invited to speak at a conference in London and uh, the conference was being held at a fancy location, Cyan Park, which is uh, an estate near the airport. And I surprised the conference organizers by saying I'd rather not stay there I wanted to find, if I could, an Airbnb that suited me. And they were, it was a lovely hotel and everybody was staying there. It was way more convenient to stay there. It probably made absolutely no sense. Why would I do a modest Airbnb that was less convenient to the, to the conference than where everyone else was staying for the conference? And it's because my job to be done in that case was completely different. I used to live in London 
And I don't like feeling like a tourist in London. I want to go back to my old neighborhood and I want to see my friends and I want to go to the Japanese place I really like. And I want to go across the street to the Sainsbury's that used to sell the, the, the teas I like and things like that. So for me, Airbnb wasn't competing with the fancy hotel. There was nothing the fancy hotel had done wrong. But in my mind, that wasn't the competitor. The competitor was, should I stay with a friend? Well, that's less convenient. I'm a guest. It's a little more of an imposition. So Airbnb, even though the, the flat I ultimately stayed in was way less nice, I'm sure, than the hotel room would have been, it was a way better alternative for me for lots of reasons than staying with a friend. So you can be very surprised who you're actually competing with unless you understand what job are people actually hiring it to do. And I think that's a lot of the secret of Airbnb's initial success. They've, they've got it right with their... Um, their, their logos. It's you want to be at home someplace. You want to feel like you live in Paris, even if it's only for a day, rather than feel like a tourist. And that's a powerful draw for many people. No, this is so right. And this is something I actually recommend a lot. One of the first steps of innovating is actually also looking at your own life and making sure that you see it through the lenses of the theory, because It's very helpful to do an introspection and dig into the data because you have access to it. And sometimes you realize that you were thinking that your own customers had different assumptions that you have, and actually these are the same. And you should not treat them as just customers, but also as humans. Well, that's yeah, what I think was part of the reason that Steve Jobs was so successful. You know, his, his focus group was looking in the mirror, really. And he started with effectively what were the jobs in his own life and built on from there. And for many entrepreneurs, that is has been the secret is they start with something they're trying to accomplish, progress they're trying to make in their own life, a frustration that they have. And if it's true for you, it is likely to be true for a lot of people. And I think that's a very powerful starting point for uh, new and fresh ideas. If it, if it would make a difference in your life, it might make a difference in other lives as well. And how can a company make sure that the right processes are in place to apply the jobs to be done? Well, it's very, it is very hard because I think it's so hard to, to keep at bay all of the assumptions taking over. And even I think you can assume, and we do for the sake of our book, that every successful company started with getting a job to be done right somehow. Probably they were successful because they intuitively or in whatever way Um, understood a, a job to be done for which there was not a good enough solution and they, they created something that was good and they found an audience. That part usually is not so hard. What happens after that is that companies tend to disconnect from their, their connection with the job to be done, their deep understanding of what their customers are trying to accomplish and what really matters And they get kind of caught up in, so how can I make, now that we're successful, how can I make it more profitable? What can I measure? And you somehow start competing against all the tradition, what the, what the market wants to put you into, all the traditional competitive sets, as opposed to what else you're really competing with for the job to be done. So I think the trick is really in after you've successfully, assuming you already have a company and you're successful, is, is continually measuring your success against the job, not against simply financial indicators and what the market wants to compare you with. And I think that's really important to not kind of stray off path with good intentions because, you know, the guys in engineering say we can make it 10% faster. Well, if it's, that doesn't help someone get their job done, you haven't accomplished anything. 
if helping them get the job done means you give a different level of customer service, that's far more valuable than making the technology in new colors or, or faster speeds. Keeping the job as one of your key measurements, how well are we doing on the job, is critical to staying on track. And measuring against the jobs rather than against the, the market is actually quite difficult because you realize that sometimes you're a really small piece in the, in the jobs to be done rather than a big part of the, the market. You can't not measure the market. That's, that's reality, of course. You have to measure yourself against conventional things. But I think if you don't even try to keep track on the, of the job to be done in some way, you're going to lose track of it. And, and a great case uh, we talk about in the book is Intuit which was the founder of all kinds of financial software packages, including QuickBooks. And QuickBooks for a really long time um, didn't happen because even though they kept realizing that people were using the, the personal financial software Quicken for uh, small business accounting, they just sort of ignored it as a weird aberration. For four, for four years, literally, they ignored the fact that a lot of people were kind of jerry-rigging Quicken to use for personal financial software. It was when they finally recognized that people actually wanted this software and it wasn't competing with all the fancy accounting packages that were out there. People didn't want to get to be better accountants. They wanted their books to be done without stress. So QuickBooks was created not to compete with the um, financial sophisticated packages you could get that did everything like an accountant. It was competing with putting all those receipts in a shoebox and getting around to it later or hiring somebody part-time to do the books for you. It was a totally different vibe. So they absolutely nailed a job to be done with their product of QuickBooks. But the, the co-chairman of, of uh, Intuit told us that you get caught up in sales and new. And if you don't kind of constantly keep asking yourself, our job is to help accountants and small business people do their accounts faster and better. How are we measuring that? If you don't even try, you're going to get caught up in cross-marketing and new products and adding extra services and really get off track. And they've done some of their best work by kind of constantly reminding themselves, what job have people hired us to do and how can we get better? So if you don't even ask the question, you will definitely veer off track unless you get incredibly lucky. And the, the jobs to be done is actually also very useful in marketing and communications because one of the, the key to, to the jobs to be done is understanding the circumstance the circumstances in which the customers uh, use the product or yeah. the service absolutely if you don't if you don't it, it, you can you can do terrible ads if you don't this so, so often a disconnect between the creation and the understanding and the germ of the idea that leads to a product or service and then how it gets marketed down the line and you can do terrible ads if you don't understand what people are actually hiring it to do uh, a great example that we like to show people are uh, an ad for Snickers, which is a marathon bar in the UK. I don't know if it's uh, the same name elsewhere. Um, before and after they really kind of identified the job to be done. That's a particular chocolate bar that's really hearty and, and has nuts and, and is sort of solid. And they used to advertise it for all of the features of the chocolate bar. You know, it was creamy caramel and water made from the purest mountain makes the chocolate or whatever. And that was crazy. It was just like advertising a computer by all of its features, but not what people are hiring it to do. When they started doing, you may have seen those really funny commercials where you're not you when you're hungry. And then people eat, you know, people eat a, a Snickers bar and they get back to being themselves. That was square on the job to be done. People buy Snickers bars when they want to feel like they've kind of they're, they need a meal and they want to get back to who they are and not be grump. We call it hangry in the U.S., uh, hungry and angry. Um, that was a square on job to be done. 
if you don't understand the job to be done that people are hiring it for, you're going to miss in your marketing efforts completely. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for, for doing this and being here and, and look at people's potential. It was an absolute pleasure. Really happy to talk to you. It was great. And where can the listeners find you? I am at uh, on Twitter at, at, at care, K-A-R, Dylan. Um, and then there, we have a website, measureyourlife.com. Both of those are easy to find me. And the new book is called Competing Against Luck. Um, and it'll be out in the fall. Amazing. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unlock People's Potential. This podcast was brought to you by Contriber. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Let us know what you think. You can find the show notes on our blog, blog.contriber.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you've been inspired to become a great leader and to unlock people's potential.